Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. 
I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Sarah, Clee, Lucy Russell, Sean Connick, and a very special Valentine's Day shout out to Fawn from Mr. Eric Ross Gilman. Happy Valentine's Day, Fawn. Thank you all so much for being patrons of the show. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, all of the names that I just read are supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is an amazing site where you can directly uh, contribute to and support creators of the work that you like. So, if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest, maybe it's part of your nightly routine, and consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. At $5 a month, you get all kinds of extra poetry readings just for donating, um, but no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you want to be part of making this show, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lebkowski, and the cover of for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. Well, it is Valentine's Day. I hope you all are having a wonderful, lovey-dovey day. And while tonight's story is not necessarily very romantic, it is a very, very good book to fall asleep to. One of the better books to snooze to that I've stumbled upon in a while. And it's by one of my favorite old school authors, Edith Warren. And the story, or reading that we'll be doing tonight, is a little book she put together called The Writing of Fiction. And the entire reading is just her talking about, literally, the writing of fiction, its form, how to do it, um, different ways that subject matter can be used in novels versus short stories. It's all about the form of writing itself, and while it is very, very informative, and I'm sure it's very useful to writers who are looking to produce a short story or a novel, it is outrageously boring. So, I really think that you are going to like this reading tonight because it is perfectly suited to help you drift off into a deep, deep slumber. So tonight, The Writing of Fiction by Edith Wharton. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real 
comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. The distrust of technique and the fear of being unoriginal. Both symptoms of a certain lack of creative abundance are in truth leading to pure anarchy in fiction. And one is tempted to say that in certain schools, formlessness is now regarded as the first condition of form. Not long ago, I heard a man of letters declare that Dostoevsky was superior to Tolstoy because his mind was more chaotic and he could therefore render more truthfully the chaos of the Russian mind in general. Though how chaos can be apprehended and defined by a mind immersed in it, the speaker did not make clear. The assertion, of course, was the result of confusing imaginative emotivity with its objective rendering. What the speaker meant was that the novelist who would create a given group of people or portray special social conditions must be able to identify himself with them, which is a rather long way of saying that an artist must have imagination. The chief difference between the merely sympathetic and the creative imagination is that the latter is two-sided and combines with the power of penetrating into other minds, that of standing far enough aloof from them to see beyond and relate them to the whole stuff of life, of which they but partially emerge. Such an all-round view can be obtained only by mounting to a height, and that height, in art, is proportioned to the artist's power of detaching one part of his imagination from a particular problem in which the rest is steeped. One of the causes of the confusion of judgment on this point is no doubt the perilous affinity between the art of fiction and the material it works in. It has been so often said that all art is representation the giving back in consciousness form of the shapeless raw material of experience that one would willingly avoid insisting on such a truism. But while there is no art of which the saying is truer than of fiction, there is none in respect of which there is more danger of the axioms being misinterpreted. The attempt to give back any fragment of life in painting or sculpture or music presupposes transposition, stylization. To represent, in words, is far more difficult because the relation is so close between model and artist. The novelist works in the very material out of which the object he is trying to render is made. He must use 
to express soul, the signs which soul uses to express itself. It is relatively easy to separate the artistic version of an object from its complex and tangled actuality if one has to re-see it in paint or marble or bronze. It is infinitely difficult to render a human mind when one is employing the very word dust with which thought is formulated. Still, the transposition does take place as surely, if not as obviously, in a novel as in a statue. If it did not, the writing of fiction could never be classed among works of art, products of conscious ordering and selecting, and there would consequently be nothing to say about it, since there seems to be no way of estimating aesthetically anything to which no standard of choice can be applied. Another unsettling element in modern art is that common symptom of immaturity, the dread of doing what has been done before. For though one of the instincts of youth is imitation, another, equally imperious, is that of fiercely guarding against it. In this respect, the novelist of the present day is in danger of being caught in a vicious circle. For the insatiable demand for quick production tends to keep him in a state of perpetual immaturity, and the ready acceptance of his wares encourages him to think that no time need be wasted in studying the past history of his art or in speculating on its principles. This conviction strengthens the belief that the so-called quality of originality may be impaired by too long brooding on one's theme and too close a commerce with the past. But the whole history of that past in every domain of art disproves this by what survives and shows that every subject to yield and to retain its full flavor should be long carried in the mind, brooded upon, and fed with all the impressions and emotions which nourish its creator. True originality consists not in a new manner, but in a new vision. That new, that personal vision is attained only by looking long enough at the object represented to make it the writer's own and the mind, which would bring this secret germ to fruition, must be able to nourish it with an accumulated wealth of knowledge and experience. To know any one thing, one must not only know something of a great many others, but also, as Matthew Arnold long since pointed out, a great deal more of one's immediate subject than any partial presentation of it visibly includes. In Mr. Kipling's What Should They Know of England Who Only England Know might be taken as the symbolic watchword of the creative artist. 
One is sometimes tempted to think that the generation which has invented the fiction course is getting the fiction it deserves. At any rate, it is fostering in its young writers the conviction that art is neither long nor arduous, and perhaps blinding them to the fact that notoriety and mediocrity are often interchangeable terms. But though the trade wind in fiction undoubtedly drives many beginners along the line of least resistance and holds them there, it is far from being the sole cause of the present quest for shortcuts in art. There are writers indifferent to popular success, and even contemptuous of it, who sincerely believe that this line marks the path of the true vocation. Many people assume that the artist receives, at the outset of his career, the mysterious sealed orders known as inspiration, and has only to let that sovereign impulse carry him where it will. Inspiration does indeed come at the outset to every creator, but it comes most often as an infant, helpless, stumbling, inarticulate, to be taught and guided. And the beginner, during this time of training, his gift is as likely to misuse it as a young parent to make mistakes in teaching his first child. There is no doubt that in this day of general speeding up, the inspirational theory is seductive even to those who carry nothing for easy triumphs. No writer, especially at the beginning of his career, can help being influenced by the quality of the audience that awaits him. And the young novelist may ask of what use our experience in meditation when his readers are so incapable of giving him either. The answer is that he will never do his best till he ceases altogether to think of his readers and his editor and his publisher and begins to write not for himself but for that other self with whom the creative artist is always in mysterious correspondence and who, happily, has an objective existence somewhere, and will someday receive the message sent to him, though the sender may never know it. As to experience, intellectual and moral, the creative imagination can make a little go a long way, provided it remains long enough in the mind and is sufficiently brooded upon. One good heartbreak will furnish the poet with many songs and the novelist with a considerable number of novels. But they must have hearts that can break. Even to the writer least concerned with popularity, it is difficult at first to defend his personality. Study and meditation contain their own perils. Counselors intervene with contradictory advice and instances. In such cases, these counselors are most often other people's novels, 
the great novels of the past, which haunt the beginner like a passion, and the works of his contemporaries, which pull him this way and that with two persuasive hands. His impulse, at first, will be either to shun them to his own impoverishment, or to let his dawning individuality be lost in theirs. But gradually, he will come to see that he must learn to listen to them, take all they can give, absorb it into himself, and then turn his own task with the fixed resolve to see life only through his own eyes. Even then, another difficulty remains, the mysterious discrepancy which sometimes exists between a novelist's vision of life and his particular kind of talent. Not infrequently, an innate tendency to see things in large masses is combined with the technical inability to render them otherwise than separately, meticulously, on a small scale. Perhaps more failures than one is aware of are due to this particular lack of proportion between the powers of vision and expression. At any rate, it is the cause of some painful struggles and arid dissatisfaction, and the only remedy is resolutely to abandon the larger for the smaller field, to narrow one's vision to one's pencil and do the small thing closely and deeply rather than the big thing loosely and superficially. Of twenty subjects that tempt the imagination, subjects one sees oneself doing, and so wonderfully if only one were Merrimy or Maupassant or Conrad or Mr. Kipling, probably but one is fit for the hand of the limited person one happens to be, and to learn to renounce the others is a first step towards doing that particular one well. These considerations have led straight to the great, the central matter of the subject, and inextricably interwoven with it are the subsidiary points of form and style both of which ought, as it were, to spring naturally out of the particular theme chosen for representation. Form might perhaps, for present purposes, be defined as the order, in time and importance, in which the incidents of the narrative are grouped, and style as the way in which they are presented, not only in the narrower sense of language, but also, and rather, as they are grasped and colored by their medium, the narrator's mind, and given back in his words. It is the quality of the medium which gives these incidents their quality. Style, in this sense, is the most personal ingredient in the combination of things out of which any work of art is made. Words are the exterior symbols of thought, and it is only by their exact use that the writer can keep on his subject the close and patient hold which fishes the murex up 
and steeped his creation in unfading colors. Style in this definition is discipline and the self-consecration it demands and the bearing it has on the whole of the artist's effort have been admirably summed up by Marcel Proust in that searching chapter of A L'Ombre de Jean Fille in Fleur, where he analyzes the art of fiction in the person of the great novelist Bergon. The severity of his taste, his unwillingness to write anything of which he could not say, in his favorite phrase, Sedu, this determination, which had caused him to spend so many seemingly fruitless years in the precious carving of trifles, was in reality the secret of his strength. For habit makes the style of the writer as it makes the character of the man, and the author who has several times contented himself with expressing his thought in an approximately pleasing way, has once and for all set a boundary to his talent and will never pass beyond. These definitions of form and style being established and the preliminary need of the harmony between an author's talent and his argument being assumed, one is next faced by the profounder problem of the inherent fitness of any given subject as material for the imagination. It has been often said that subject in itself is all important, and at least as often that is of no importance whatever. Definition is, again, necessary before the truth can be extracted from these contradictions. Subject, obviously, is what the story is about. But whatever the central episode or situation chosen by the novelist, his tale will be about only just so much of it as he reacts to. A gold mine is worth nothing unless the owner has the machinery for extracting the ore, and each subject must be considered first in itself. The next in relation to the novelist's power of extracting from it what it contains. There are subjects trivial in appearance, and subjects trivial to the core and the novelist ought to be able to discern at a glance between the two, and know in which case it was worthwhile to set about sinking his shaft. But the novelist may make mistakes. He is exposed to the temptation of the false good subject, and learns only by prolonged experience to resist surface attractions and probe his story to the depths before he begins to tell it. There is still another way in which subject must be tested. Any subject considered in itself must first of all respond in some way to the mysterious need of a judgment on life, of which the most detached human intellect, provided it be a normal one, cannot apparently rid itself. 
whether the moral be present in the guise of the hero rescuing the heroine from the villain at the point of the revolver, or whether it lurk in the quiet irony of such a scene as Pendennis's visit to the Greyfriars Chapel and his hearing the choir singing, I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging their bread. At that very moment, he discovers the bent head of Colonel Newcomb among the pauper gentlemen. In one form or another, there must be some sort of rational response to the reader's unconscious but insistent inner question. What am I being told this story for? What judgment on life does it contain for me? There seems to be no escape from this obligation except into a pathological world where the action taking place between people of abnormal psychology and not keeping time with our normal human rhythms becomes an idiot's tale, signifying nothing. In vain has it been attempted to set up a watertight compartment between art and morality. All of the great novelists whose books have been used to point the argument have invariably declared themselves on the other side, not only by the inner significance of their work, but also in some cases, <sighs> but also in some cases by the most explicit statements. Flaubert, for instance, so often cited as the example of the writer viewing his themes in a purely scientific or immoral light, has disproved the claim by providing the other camp with that perfect formula. A good subject, then, must contain in itself something that sheds a light on our moral experience. If it is incapable of this expansion, this vital radiation, it remains, however showy a surface it presents, a mere irrelevant happening, a meaningless scrap of factotum of its context. Nor is it more than a half-truth to say that the imagination which probes deep enough can find this germ in any happening, however insignificant. The converse is true enough. The limited imagination reduces a great theme to its own measure. But the wide creative vision, though no fragment of human experience can appear wholly empty to it, yet seeks by instinct those subjects in which some phase of our common plight stands forth dramatically and typically Subjects which, in themselves, are a kind of summary or foreshortening of life's dispersed and inclusive occurrences. Chapter 2 Telling a Short Story The modern novel, the modern short story, seems to have originated, or at least received its present stamp 
and France. English writers in this line were slower in attaining the point to which the French and Russians first carried the art. Since then, the short story has developed and reached out in fresh directions in the hands of such novelists as Mr. Hardy, only occasionally at his best in this form, of Stevenson, James, and Conrad, all three almost unfailingly excellent in it, of Mr. Kipling, past master of the Conti, and Sir Arthur Queller Couch, whose delightful early volumes, Knots and Crosses, and I Saw Three Ships, are less known than they deserve to be. These writers had long been preceded by Scott in Wandering Willie's Tale, and other short stories by Poe, The Sporadic and Unaccountable, and by Hawthorne. But almost all the best tales of Scott, Hawthorne, and Poe belong to that peculiar category of the eerie, which lies outside of the classic tradition. When the novel of manners comes to be dealt with, classification in order of time will have to be reserved, and an order of merit will be less easy, for even against Balzac, Tolstoy, and Turgenev, the genius of the great English observers from Richardson and Jane Austen to Thackeray and Dickens will weigh heavily in the balance. With regard to the short story, however, and especially to that compactest form of it, the short short story, or Conti, its first specimens, are undoubtedly of continental production. But happily for English letters, the generation who took over and adapted the formula were nursed on the Gothian principle that those who remained imprisoned in the false notion of their originality will always fall short of what they might have accomplished. The sense of form, already defined as order in time and importance, in which the narrated incidents are grew is in all the arts, specifically of the classic, the Latin tradition. A thousand years of form, in the widest disciplinary sense, of its observance, its application, its tacit acceptance of the first condition of artistic expression, have cleared the ground for the French writer of fiction of many superfluous encumbrances. As the soil of France is all of soils the most weeded, tilled, and ductile, so the field of art, wherever French culture extends, is the most worked over and most prepared for whatever seed is to be sown in it. But when the great Russians who owe to French culture much more than is generally conceded, took over that neat thing, the French Nouvelle. They gave it the additional dimension it most often lacked. In any really good subject, 
one has only to probe deep enough to come to tears, and the Russians almost always dig to that depth. The result has been to give to the short story, as French and Russian art have combined to shape it, great closeness of texture with profundity of form. Instead of a loose web spread over the surface of life, they have made it, at its best, a shaft driven straight into the heart of human experience. Though the critic no longer feels that need of classifying and subclassifying the genres which so preoccupy the contemporaries of Wordsworth, there are in all the arts certain local products that seem to necessitate a parenthesis. Such, in fiction, is the use of the supernatural. It seems to have come from mysterious Germanic and Armorican forests, from lands of long twilights and wailing winds, and it certainly did not pass through French or even Russian hands to reach us. Sorcerers and magic are of the South, the Mediterranean, the witch of Theocritus brewed a brew fit for her sister hags of the Scottish heath. But the spectral apparition walks only in the pages of English and Germanic fiction. It has done so to great effect in some of the most original of our great English short stories from Scott's Wandering Willie and Poe's awful hallucinations to Lefano's Watcher, and from the throne Janet of Stevenson to the turn of the screw of Henry James, last great master of the Erie in English. All these tales, in which the effect saw is completely achieved, are models of the subtlest artifice, it is not enough to believe in ghosts, or even to have seen one, to be able to write a good ghost story. The greater the improbability to be overcome, the more studied must be the approach, the more perfectly maintained the air of naturalness, the easy assumption that things are always likely to happen in that way. One of the chief obligations in a short story is to give the reader an immediate sense of security. Every phrase should be a signpost and never, unless intentionally, a misleading one. The reader must feel that he can trust to their guidance. His confidence, once gained, he may also be lured to the most incredible adventures, as the Arabian Nights are there to show. A wise critic once said, you may ask your reader to believe anything you can make them believe. It is never the genie who are unreal, but only their unconvinced historian's description of them. The least touch of irrelevance the least chill of inattention will instantly undo the spell and it will take as long to weave again 
as to get Humpty Dumpty back on the wall. The moment the reader loses faith in the author's sureness of foot, the chasm of improbability games. Improbability in itself, then, is never a danger, but the appearance of improbability is, unless indeed the tale be based on what, in my first chapter, I called pathological conditions, conditions of body or mind outside of the feel of normal experience. But this term, of course, does not apply to states of mind inherited from an earlier phase of race culture, such as the belief in ghosts. No one with a spark of imagination ever objected to a good ghost story as improbable. Though Mrs. Barbaud, who doubtless lacked the spark, is said to have condemned the ancient mariner on this ground. Most of us retain the more or less shadowy memory of ancestral terrors, the airy tongues that syllable men's names. We cannot believe a priory in the probability of the actions of madmen or neuroasthenics because their reasoning processes escape most of us or can at best be imagined only as belonging to abnormal or exceptional people. But everybody knows a good ghost when he reads about him. When the reader's confidence is gained, the next rule of the game is to avoid distracting and splintering up his attention. Many a would-be tale of horror becomes innocuous through the very multiplication and variety of its horrors. Above all, if they are multiplied, they should be cumulative and not dispersed. But the fewer the better. Once the preliminary horror positive, it is the harping on the same string, the same nerve that does the trick. Quiet iteration is far more racking than diversified assaults. The expected is more frightful than unforeseen. The play of Emperor Jones is a striking instance of the power of simplification and repetition to excite in an audience a corresponding state of tension. By sheer voodoo practice, it shows how voodoo acts. In the turn of the screw, which stands alone among tales of the supernatural in maintaining the ghostliness of its ghosts, not only through a dozen pages, but through close on two hundred, the economy of horror is carried to its last degree. What is the reader made to expect? Always, all through the book, that somewhere in that hushed house of doom, the poor little governess will come on one of these two figures of evil with whom she is fighting for the souls of her charges. It will be either Peter Quinn or the horror of horrors, Miss Jessel. No diversion from this one dread is ever attempted or expected. 
It is true that the tale is strongly held together by its profound, its appalling moral significance. But most readers will admit that, long before they are conscious of this, fear, simple, shivering animal fear, has them by the throat, which after all, is what writers of ghost stories are after. It is sometimes said that a good subject for a short story should always be capable of being expanded into a novel. The principle may be defendable in special cases, but it is certainly a misleading one on which to build any general theory. Every subject, in the novelist's sense of the term, must necessarily contain within itself its own dimensions, and one of the fiction writer's essential gifts is that of discerning whether the subject which presents itself to him, asking for incarnation, is suited to the proportions of a short story or of a novel. If it appears to be adapted to both, the chances are that it is inadequate to either. It would be as great a mistake, however, to try to base a hard and fast theory on the denial of the rule as on its assertion. Instances of short stories made out of subjects that could have been expanded into a novel and that are pet typical short stories and are not mere stunted novels will occur to everyone. General rules in art are useful chiefly as a lamp in a mine or a handrail down a black stairway. They are necessary for the sake of the guidance they give. But it is a mistake, once they are formulated, to be too much in awe of them. There are at least two reasons why a subject should find expression in novel form rather than as a tale but neither is based on the number of what may be conveniently called incidents or external happenings which the narrative contains. There are novels of action which might be condensed into short stories without the loss of their distinguishing qualities. The marks of the subject requiring a longer development are first the gradual unfolding of the inner life of its characters, and secondly, the need of producing in the reader's mind the sense of the lapse of time. Outward events of the most varied and exciting nature may without loss of probability be crowded into a few hours, but moral dramas usually have their roots deep in the soul their rise far back in time, and the suddenness seeming clash in which they culminate should be led up to step by step if it is to explain and justify itself. There are cases indeed when the short story may make use of the moral drama at its culmination. If the incident dealt with be one which a single retrospective flash sufficiently lights up 
it is qualified for use as a short story. But if the subject be so complex and its successive phases so interesting as to justify elaboration, the lapse of time must necessarily be suggested and the novel form becomes appropriate. The effect of compactness and instantaneity sought in the short story is attained mainly by the observance of two unities, the old traditional one of time and that other more modern and complex, which requires that any rapidly enacted episode shall be seen through only one pair of eyes. It is fairly obvious that nothing is more retarding than the marking of a time interval long enough to suggest modification in the personages of the tale or in their circumstances. The use of such an interval inevitably turns the short story into a long tale unduly compressed, the ball of scenario of a novel. In the third chapter, where an attempt will be made to examine the technique of the novel, it will be needful to explore that central mystery, of which Tolstoy was perhaps the one complete master, the art of creating in the reader's mind this sense of passing time. Meanwhile, it may be pointed out that a third and intermediate form of tale, the long short story, is available for any subject to spreading for consciousness, yet too slight in texture to be stretched into a novel. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.